Please be aware the stories, theories, reenactments, and language in this podcast are of an adult nature and can be disturbing, frightening, and even in some cases offensive. Therefore, listener discretion is advised. Hey, there is very, very adult content ahead and, well, you've been warned. Welcome, heathens. Welcome to the world of the weird and unexplained. As always, I am your host, Nicole Delacroix, and together we will be investigating stories about the weird, wonderful, unexplained, eerie, scary, and downright unbelievable. There will be tales of ghosts, murder, supernatural beings, and unexplained mysteries. So, sit back, grab your favorite drink, Relax and prepare to be transported to today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, we're going to be exploring a mysterious disappearance of a very well-known figure. But before we get into all of that, I want to thank you wonderful, dear listeners out there. Last week's episode blew through the roof, and it's all thanks to you guys. So I hope that you like today's episode just as much. But I am going to ask for a little favor from each of you. If you like the episode, then tell one friend and ask them to check it out. And if you haven't already checked out Richie's new co-host, Lady L, well then take a moment, after this episode of course, to check her out. She's smart, she's sassy, and oh so sultry. You'll love her. Alright, enough with the personal promotions and plugs, let's get down to business. As always, we will be playing our drinking game, but remember, the drinking game is only for those of us that are at home and have nowhere else to go tonight, because I'm such a loser, I know. Normally, I like to link the drink to the theme, but tonight, I think I'm going to play it fast and loose. Pick your favorite libation and play on, my heathens. Alright, now for the game part. Every time I say... Burr, that's going to be a single shot, and every time I say Alston, that's going to be a double shot. I know you guys are questioning what we're going to be talking about. All right, with our business end officially out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's dark enigma and the mysterious disappearance of Theodosia Burr. With the popularity of the musical Hamilton, interest in the lives of our founding fathers, and by extension their families, has increased exponentially. And Aaron Burr's daughter, the subject of the song Dear Theodosia, deserves her own story, even with its own mysterious ending. Theodosia Burr was born on June 21, 1783, in Albany, New York. She was the only surviving child of Aaron Burr and Theodosia Bartow Prevost. Burr was the second husband of Miss Prevost. The two had fallen in love when she was, well, still married to her first husband. Scandalous, I know. Burr was determined that Theodosia, his daughter, of course, would have the very best of everything, including an excellent education. She could read Latin and Greek, as well as speak French, dance, and skate. 
She was a bright child and was rumored to have read The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by the time she was 10. Dude, man, I'm almost 30 and I still haven't read it, so seriously, smarter than me, I guess. Her father was convinced she could do more than just be a wife. Her education continued even after the death of her dear mother when she was 11. But our story, well, it begins in 1869 with a doctor by the name of William Gaskins Poole. While on vacation, Dr. Poole was called to help an ill old woman by the name of Polly Mann, who lived in a shack near Nags Head, North Carolina. When he and his daughter Anna gingerly entered the dark cobweb-covered home, they were drawn to a picture on the wall. Anna remembered of a beautiful young woman roughly about 25 years of age. After extensively questioning Polly about the painting, Dr. Poole believed his initial hunch was, well, correct. He believed he was staring at a portrait of the long-vanished Theodosia Burr Alston, a portrait which may actually hold the key to her long-debated fate. Today, if people know anything about Theodosia, it's because of the lovely lullaby Dear Theodosia, sung by the character of Aaron Burr in the sensational musical Hamilton. But the real-life Theodosia grew from a beloved child into a highly intelligent, complex adult whose fascinating story is largely unknown, but worthy of its own Broadway smash. Again, Theodosia Bartow Burr was born in Albany, New York on June 21, 1783. Her mother, also called Theodosia, was a brilliant and cultured woman. She had scandalized New England society when, as a married mother of five, she fell in love with an equally brilliant and much younger blue-blooded lawyer and Revolutionary War soldier, Aaron Burr. After her first husband's death, the two were married, and little Theodosia, the couple's only child to survive, became the center of her parents' and particularly her father's, world. The elder Theodosia wrote to a traveling Aaron in 1785, Your dear little Theodosia cannot hear you spoken of without an apparent melancholy, insomuch that her nurse is obliged to exert her invention to divert her, and myself avoid to mention you even in her presence. She was one whole day indifferent to everything but your name. Her attachment is not of a common nature. And Aaron, well, he reciprocated those feelings. His plans for his lovely, dark-haired little Miss Pris, which is what he called her, who was already displaying an extraordinary intellect and sharp wit, were incredibly ambitious and, for the times, highly progressive. Way to go, Aaron. And he said, I hope yet by her to convince the world that neither sex seems to believe that women have soul. And that was kind of scandalous in the 1800s. In 1800, though, Theodosia became deeply enamored with Joseph Alston, a wealthy planter from South Carolina. And she wrote teasingly to Joseph during a separation that my father laughs at my impatience to hear from you. The couple were married on February 2nd, 1801, in Albany. 
little more than a month afterwards, she and her new husband watched as her father was sworn in as Vice President of the United States under President Thomas Jefferson. They were further blessed nine months later when their son, Aaron Burr Alston, nicknamed Gampy by his doting grandfather, was born. However, the birth of her only child took a heavy toll on Theodosia. She was severely injured during the traumatic birth, and the prolapsed uterus that she suffered left her in immense pain and, well, made intercourse impossible. Although she adored her husband and his family, she had a very hard time adjusting to the isolated life of a plantation mistress at The Oaks, the family estate on the Waccamaw River in South Carolina, and she ended up spending most of her time with her father in New York. Burr, on the other hand, was having his own issues. Burr's famous duel with Alexander Hamilton occurred in 1804, resulting in Alexander Hamilton's death. Murder charges were eventually dropped, but Burr's political career was, well, over. On July 10, 1804, Aaron sat down at his desk and wrote his Theodosia a letter of goodbye, in which he wrote, I'm indebted to you, my dearest Theodosia, for a very great portion of the happiness which I have enjoyed in this life. You have completely satisfied all that my heart and affections have hoped for or even wished. The next day, Aaron, still the Vice President of the United States, would kill Alexander Hamilton in a duel in Weehawken, New Jersey. And rumors swirled as to the cause of the duel. Aaron had been incensed by a comment Hamilton had made about still more despicable acts. Some thought Hamilton may have actually been referring to Aaron and Theodosia's morbid affection for each other, which had led to some whispers of incest. After that, Burr then tried to join western states with Mexico and essentially create his own kingdom. And had it worked, Theodosia would have become queen of Mexico. But the plan failed and Burr was once again in hot water. That's right, the Burr dynasty was not to be. The plot was found out and Burr was taken into custody. In 1807, he was tried for treason in Richmond with the ever-loyal Theodosia at his side. Amazingly, Aaron was acquitted once again, and with the help of his darling daughter Theodosia, he soon smuggled himself out of the country and headed for Europe. Her father now gone, Theodosia's health, because she was probably in the final stages of uterine cancer, deteriorated even further. The most violent affections have tormented her during the whole of the last 18 months. She, of course, wrote in the third person to a doctor in 1808. Hysteric fits, various colors and flashes of light before her, yes. Figures passing around her bed, strange noises, low spirits, and worse. She missed her father intensely. What indeed, she wrote him, would I not risk once more to see him, to hang upon him, to place my child upon his knee, and again spend my days in the happy occupation of endeavoring to anticipate his wishes. Theodosia continued to defend her father, even sacrificing her own health. She wrote all of her political connections, hoping that they could safely return her father to America. She even wrote to James Madison's wife, Dolly, asking for help. And she wrote, 
My anxiety on this subject has, however, become too painful to be alleviated by anticipations which no events have yet to justify. And in this state of intolerable suspense, I have determined to address myself to you and request that you will, in my name, apply to the President for a removal of the prosecution against Aaron Burr. I still expect it from him as a man feeling and candor, as one acting for the world and posterior. posterity. Sorry about that. Theodosia wrote that in 1809, but Aaron Burr wasn't able to return to the Americas until 1812, when Theodosia's beloved Gampy, her son, died of malaria in South Carolina. With the loss of her only child, Theodosia's world grew darker. There is no joy for me, she wrote. The world is blank. I have lost my boy. On December 10, 1812, Joseph Alston was elected governor of South Carolina. His new position made it impossible for him to accompany Theodosia to New York, and with the War of 1812 raging in the Atlantic, he was worried about his frail wife making the treacherous trip to New York. To ensure his daughter's safety, Aaron sent down his friend, Dr. Timothy Green, to secure a boat and make sure that Theodosia made it home to him. Theodosia, along with Dr. Green, a French maid and skeleton crew, boarded a small schooner, named the Patriot, at the port of Georgetown on December 31st. One week passed, then two, then three, with no word from the Patriot, its small crew, or any of the passengers. And Joseph wrote to Aaron, In three weeks I have not yet one line from her. My mind is tortured. After thirty days my wife is either captured or lost. By February 24th he had given up all hope. My boy and my wife, gone, both. This, then, is the end of all the hopes we had formed, he had written to his father-in-law. You may well observe that you feel severed from the human race. She was the last thing that bound us to this species. Within weeks of the Patriots' disappearance, rumors about Theodosia's fate began to spread in the North and the South. Joseph himself died in 1816, a shell of the man he once was. Burr, however, lived another 23 years, long enough to witness the cottage industry of com conspiracy theories about his daughter's disappearance come to life. He refused to believe she was still alive, stating firmly, She is dead. She perished in this miserable little pilot boat in which she left. Were she alive, all the prisons in the world could not keep her from her father. Many believed the Patriot had been captured by one of the pirate ships known to troll the Outer Banks. Over the years, numerous deathbed confessions from various aged or imprisoned pirates were reported in papers all over the country. The first to gain any traction was the case of Jean Defarge and Robert Johnson, who were executed in 1819 for other crimes. An 1820 article in the New York Advertiser claimed that the two had confessed to having been crew on the Patriot. They claimed to have led a mutiny and scuttled the ship, killing all on board. In 1833, the Mobile Commercial Register reported that another man had confessed to raiding the Patriot with other pirates who had reluctantly forced Theodosia to walk the plank. Other stories claim that she had become the wife of an American Indian in Texas, been taken as a pirate's mistress to Bermuda, or that she had killed herself after resisting the advances of the pirate Octave Chauvet. 
Yet another fanciful story had her writing farewell letters to her father and husband and stuffing them in and her wedding ring into a champagne bottle and throwing it into the Carolina Sea before being executed. Perhaps the most oft-repeated confession was that of Benjamin F. Burdick, a hard, rough old salt of a sailor. On his deathbed at a poorhouse in Michigan, he is said to have confessed to a minister's wife that he had been on the pirate ship that overtook the Patriot. And according to an 1878 edition of the New York Times, and I quote, He said there was one lady on board who was beautiful appearing, intelligent and cultivated, who gave her name as Miss Theodosia Alston. When her turn came to walk the fatal plank, she asked for a few moments' time, which was gruffly granted her. She then retired to her berth and changed her apparel, appearing on deck in a few moments clad in pure white garments, and with a Bible in her hand, she announced that she was ready. She appeared as calm and composed as if she were at home, and not a tremor crept over her frame, or a pallor overspread her features, as she walked toward her fate. And as she was taking those fatal steps, she folded her hand over her bosom and raised her eyes to heaven. She fell and sank without a murmur or a sigh. Then there is the curious case of the female stranger, who is buried at the St. Paul's Episcopal Graveyard in Alexandria, Virginia. It is said this veiled lady appeared in the city in 1816 with a man claiming to be her husband. She died a short time later. Legend has it that this was Theodosia and Dr. Green, recently returned from captivity in the islands. Perhaps the only clue we have as to what really happened to Theodosia is the Nag's Head portrait, discovered by Dr. Poole in 1869. According to his daughter, Polly Mann told her and her father that her deceased husband, Joseph Tillett, was a wrecker who scavenged the ships that washed up on the shores of the Outer Banks. She claimed that decades before, he and his friends had come upon a scuttled, empty schooner near Kitty Hawk. In one cabin, they found many fine items, including the portrait and dresses, which were now in Polly's possession. Also exposed to our view, they stated, a vase of wax flowers under a glass globe, Anna remembered, and a shell beautifully carved in the shape of a nautilus. Polly gave the portrait to Dr. Poole in lieu of payment for his services for helping her get well again. He took it back home to Elizabeth City, and over the years, he and his cohorts would attempt to get authentication of the portrait from the Burr and Alston families, whose opinions as to whether the likeness was Theodosia varied greatly. Joseph Alston's youngest sister wrote, I do remember her beautiful eyes, and the eyes in the picture are really beautiful. Those who believe in the painting's authenticity think it proves that Theodosia died off the coast of the North Carolina shore one way or another. There were fierce storms on the Outer Banks January 2nd and 3rd in 1812, which caused damage to ships nearby the Patriots' planned route. It is most likely that the small ship was simply overpowered by the storm, but who knows? Perhaps pirates, rogue wreckers, the British, or something else caused the boat's destruction. Or perhaps Theodosia was spirited away to some exotic land and lived a long, happy life, though in her precarious health that does seem very unlikely. Theodosia Burr Alston, her fellow passengers and crew, and the Patriot itself were never seen again. The Patriot had disappeared without a trace. 
Later, it was learned that the British fleet had stopped her off of Hatteras on January the 2nd. Governor Alston's letter worked, and the schooner was allowed to pass. Later that night, a gale arose and scattered the British fleet. Beyond that little clue, no more is known. Burr sent searchers to Nassau and Bermuda with no success. Why he neglected to send them to the Outer Banks remains a mystery, for it is happenstance that there is where Theo met her fate. Following the Patriot's disappearance, rumors, of course, immediately arose. The most enduring was that the Patriot had been captured by the pirate Dominique Yu, a.k.a. the Bloody Babe. Or that something had occurred near Cape Hatteras, notorious for its wreckers. Her father refused to credit any of the rumors of her possible capture, believing that she had died in a shipwreck. But the rumors persisted long after his death, and after around 1850, more substantial explanations of the mystery surfaced again, usually alleging to be from the deathbed confessions of sailors and executed criminals. One story considered to be somewhat plausible was that the Patriot had fallen prey to the wreckers known as the Carolina Bankers. The bankers populated the Sandbank Islands near Nags Head, North Carolina, pirating wrecks and murdering both passengers and crews. When the sea did not serve up wrecks for their plunder, well, they would lure ships onto the shoals. On stormy nights, the bankers would hobble a horse, tie a lantern around the animal's neck, and walk it up and down the beach. Sailors at sea could not distinguish the bobbing light they saw from that of a ship, which was anchored securely. Often they steered to shore to find shelter. Instead, they became wrecked on the banks, after which their crews and passengers were murdered. In 1833, an Alabama newspaper, the Mobile Register, reported that a man residing in one of the interior counties of this state made a deathbed confession that he had participated in the capture of the Patriot. The murder of all those on board and the scuttling of the vessel for the sake of her plate and effects... In relation to this, a Mr. J.A. Elliott of Norfolk, Virginia, made a statement in 1910 that in the early part of 1813, the dead body of a young woman, with every indication of refinement, had been washed ashore at Cape Charles and had been buried on her finder's farm. Writing in the Charleston News and Courier, Foster Haley claimed that documents he had discovered in the state archives in Mobile, Alabama, said that the Patriot had been captured by a pirate vessel captained by John Howard Payne, and that every person on board had been murdered by the pirates, including a woman who was obviously a noblewoman or a lady of high birth. However, Haley never identified or cited the documents he had supposedly found. The most romantic legend concerning Theodosia's fate involves piracy and a Karankawa Indian chief on the Texas Gulf Coast. The earliest American settlers to the Gulf Coast testified of a Karankawa warrior wearing a gold locket inscribed Theodosia. It claimed that after a terrible storm, he found a ship wrecked at the mouth of the San Bernard River. Hearing a faint cry, he boarded the hulk and found a white woman, naked except for the gold locket, chained to a bulkhead by her ankle. The woman fainted on seeing the Karankawa warrior, and he managed to pull her free and carry her to shore. When she revived, she told him that she was the daughter of a great chief of the white men, who was misunderstood by his people and had to leave his country. Before dying in his arms, she gave him the locket and told him that if he ever met white men, he was to show them the locket and tell them that story. 
Another myth about her fate traces its origins to Charles Etienne Arthur Gaillard's book, Fernando de Lemos, Truth and Fiction, a novel from 1872. Gaillard devoted one chapter to a confession by the pirate Dominique Yu. In Gaillard's story, Yu admitted having captured the pirate after he discovered it dismasted off Cape Hatteras following a storm. Yu and his men murdered the crew while Theodosia was made to walk the plank. And I quote, Gaillard wrote in Yu's voice, She stepped on it and descended into the sea with graceful composure, as if she had been alighting from a carriage. She sank, and rising again, she, with an indescribable smile of angelic sweetness, waved her hand to me as if she meant to say, Farewell and thanks again, and then sank forever. Fifteen years later, another former pirate, old Frank Burdick, confessed a similar story on his deathbed. He told a horrifying story of holding the plank for Miss Alston, who walked calmly over the side, dressed completely in white. He said she begged for word of her fate to be sent to her father and husband. He went on to say that once the crew and passengers had been murdered, they plundered the ship and abandoned her, her under full sail. He also mentioned seeing a portrait of Theodosia in the main cabin. Because Gaillard billed his novel as a mixture of truth and fiction, there was popular speculation about whether his account of Yu's confession might be real, and the story entered into American folklore. The American folklorist Edward Rose Snow later put together an account in Strange Tales from Nova Scotia to Cape Hatteras, incorporating the Gaillard story with later offshoots. For example, on February 14, 1903, one Mrs. Harriet Sprague issued a sworn statement before notary Freeman Atwell of Cass County, Michigan, claiming to corroborate the details of Yu's confession in Gaillard's 1872 novel. Miss Sprague described the contents of an 1848 confession by pirate Frank Burdick, an alleged shipmate of Yu's, when the Patriot was discovered. The pirates left most of Alston's clothing untouched, as well as the portrait of Alston. Today, the legend of Theodosia lives on. The nag's head portrait now hangs in the Lewis Walpole Library at Yale. Her ghost is said to haunt her plantation, the Oaks, the Outer Banks, Richmond Hill, and Bald Head Island, where it is said her spirit is chased by three headless pirates. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the mystery was spun into several novels and countless magazine articles. And many little girls were named after her, including Theodosia Burr Goodman, who would become famous as the silent screen vamp, Theta Barra. Her story was a favorite of poets, including Robert Frost, whose poem Kitty Hawk includes the line, Did I recollect how the wreckers wrecked Theodosia Burr off this very shore? T'was to punish her, but her father more. But perhaps the impact of the mystery of Theodosia is best summed up by her friend, Margaret Blenner Hassett, in her poem on a friend who was supposed to have suffered a shipwreck. And it states, And now I wander all alone, nor heed the balmy breeze, but list the ring dove's tender moan and think upon the seas. And with that, my darlings, we have come to the end of our episode, and I do thank you for joining me here today, and I hope that you'll take some time to reach out to me and tell me what you think about the episode. You can always reach the episode at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com, and hey, if you've got some suggestions for a future show, or you just want to tell me what you think, drop me a line, because I promise you this, I do respond to every email you send. And on that note, that's all the time that I have here for today. 
Thank you for joining me here on Renegade Talk Radio. And don't forget to tune in next time. See you next time, my heathens. Love ya. Mwah. We don't sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.